This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. About four weeks ago, uh, really this is the fifth week, we uh, decided to do a series on attitudes. We call it sabotage because when sabotage happens, the thing about sabotage is we, we don't even know it's happening and there's something that's happening and it's destroying the work that is going on. And, and we believe that God wants to give us life through Jesus Christ. And, and so we spent four weeks uh, looking at attitudes that can sabotage our life. It's, it's been remarkable because even from the first week on, um, I've got so much feedback from you guys about how this has really been hitting you and, and how it's been touching you. And I, I promise you it's been doing the same thing to me. And so what we decided to do was to take a week and just say, hey, we're just going to open it up. You guys ask questions. We'll build an entire message around the questions that you ask. And so that's what we've done today. Here's some things that I want you to understand about questions in life in general. Questions are good, but we can make them bad. Questions are good, but we can make them bad. See, questions are good because questions can become fuel for our journey in life, our journey towards Christ-likeness, our journey towards Jesus. They can become fuel because they force us to go to Jesus. They force us to pray. They force us to read God's word. They force us to live in community. They force us to take the next step. But see, questions can become bad. Questions can become bad when we feel entitled to an immediate answer. Or when we want the answer to be what only we would say is a good answer. And the truth is, is that for those of us that have been following Jesus for a while, there are questions that still are not answered. So when we live in an immediate economy and we say, I want an answer to this question right now. And God doesn't provide that answer immediately. Questions when we approach them wrong can become fuel for doubt. Because faith is having questions and still trusting Jesus with the outcome. So today what we wanted to do was to take some of the questions that you guys had that possibly we didn't answer throughout the series. And we wanted to go back in and to provide some answers to you. So let's go ahead and get started. Number one, how do you balance staying distant from biters while staying away from a judgmental attitude? It's a great question. It's really using some terminology from the Walking Dead series. We did a, a message on biters. And let's just kind of provide some definition that's working here. Um, what is a biter? A biter is someone that we've been in relationship with or in proximity to who their sin or our history with them provides a substantial hurdle in us following Jesus. They are people who infect our lives with negativity and resistance. And let's also go back to what does it mean to be judgmental. 
And the message on being judgmental, basically what we said is that we have the decision that Adam and Eve had, that there were two trees in the garden, a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve chose the, to respond to the temptation of Satan, which was you can be like God and know the difference between good and evil. You can be the judge. You can be the one that's on the throne deciding what is right and what is wrong. That is sinful and broken and has been around since the start. That's when we become judgmental. When we decide to usurp God and to take over the throne and to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. The Bible invites us several times, though, not to judge, but to evaluate. To evaluate based on fruit. To look at someone's life and to say, is there, is there fruit of this teaching that you're giving me? It's most often directed towards those that are teaching us. So there's a, a great difference between judgment and evaluation. Okay? So let's just kind of answer that and, and go there. So to go back to that message, though, just to answer this question, how can I keep away from being judgmental when I'm dealing with biters? Who is a biter? A biter is someone that I've been in relationship with, that I've been close to, who their sin or our history has a negative impact on my capacity to follow Jesus. There's something that's important in that to understand. It's my relationship with them. It's my closeness to them. It was my decision to step into this relationship fully knowing, fully knowing what's going on. So during the message, I told you this. The Bible gives you permission to judge one person. Who is that? You. I have full permission to judge myself. So in this situation that we have a biter in our life, whose fault is it? It's mine. It's my fault. It's not their fault. I, I chose to be in a relationship with you. I chose to get close to you. I chose to let this tension, this negative thing go on. I chose to live in a relationship that has this kind of gravity where what we did is we got together and got high. Or what we did is we were friends and we had casual sex. That's my decision. And so how do I keep from being judgmental And that? It's to judge me. The answer to that question is to give them grace because it's your fault. Give them grace. I'm, I'm going to give you a practical example. A few weeks ago, I, I got a phone call. It was from a, a wife. And, and, and she began to tell me, you know, about some very difficult things that were going on in her family. There was some drug use and... Um, and, and, and she was very concerned about this. And I said, well, would you, would you tell me about your history here? Would you just sh share that with me? And, and she went through and, 
You know, they, 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 when they met, they both didn't know Jesus and they were recreational drug users. And, and, I, and I said, so when, when you guys met, right, this is what was going on? And then you met Jesus and things changed in your life. And now you're very angry because things haven't changed in his life. But you chose to enter this relationship fully knowing that that's what was going on. So what do we do? We want to give grace. And the reason that I told you that we want to give grace is because the Bible tells us in Romans that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And so we give grace because we want to give a platform for repentance. We don't judge, all right? Because we want to see people reconciled to Jesus. And all too often, we invert that. And we feel like, if I can point out what's wrong, they'll change. And it doesn't work that way. And so how do, how do I balance staying distant from biters while staying away from a judgmental attitude? Well, the truth is, is that we need to recognize that they became biters because we let them bite us. It's our fault. And so we accept responsibility for that. We accept responsibility with a lot of grace and humility and we repent for that and, and then we, we give them grace. Number two, number two, what's the right reason to get married? I got a couple marriage questions. I love this one. This is my, I was like, this has nothing to do with attitudes, but I won't answer it anyway. <laughs> um, this is such a good question, and I want to answer it. Um, so, so what's the right reason to get married? And I, I'm, I'm going to use the framework of, of our conversation uh, throughout the past four weeks to try to answer this. So often in today's culture, what I hear from young people is this phrase. I'm just looking for someone that can meet my needs. <laughs> and if you're married... You go, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. I can't wait till you find that person because they ain't out there. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That ain't how it works. But we do. And, and it's not uncommon. You know, when I was in college, it was, this is so absurd, but we did this. And I know many of you did this as well. We, we, were, we were told at times, go home, pull out a blank sheet of paper. Write down everything you could ever want in a spouse and start praying that God sends you that. Really? Really? I, got, I, I can mail order this now, God. <laughs> it's like, all right, I want her tall, blonde hair. No, really? So how do, you, how do we really, really find someone because see the thing is is that when we do all that what we're really saying is that I'm entitled to I'm in I'm entitled and Ronnie did such a great job last week talking about entitlement for us but what we're really saying is hey I'm entitled to someone that will take care of me because I think I deserve someone that would take care of me. I'm entitled to somebody that will cook, that will clean. I'm entitled to a man that will be soft and romantic when we're cuddling on the couch. But when somebody breaks into the house, he'll be burly and masculine all of a sudden. Because those two guys coexist inside the same body. 
We're saying I'm entitled to it. Really, the truth is, is that we need to look to someone that we can commit to serve. Instead of saying, I want somebody that can meet my needs, we want to say, for those of you that are single, I want to find somebody that I can meet their needs. That's who you want to marry. I want to find someone that I can meet their needs. Because here is the truth about good marriages. Good marriages are built on covenant, not convenience. They're built on covenant. And covenant is an all-in, buy-in, 100%. There is absolutely nothing convenient about it. Nothing. So why would you get married? What is the right reason to get married? I would say that it's to have your life changed by giving and experiencing unconditional covenant love. That you will love somebody in marriage that you know is broken and a mess. You know that they are absolutely a mess and you love them anyway. And they know you're a mess. They know that you're crazy. Your family's crazy. Everything about you is crazy and they love you anyway. They choose to. That's a profound thing. So... Here's, here's uh, just a, a few things that I would tell you, uh, checklists of this is, should be in place if you're single. Who should I marry? Number one, they should be a Christian. So young folks, young single folks, listen to me. Evangelistic dating, not, not permitted in the Bible, right? Not, they, they don't love Jesus, but I'll get them to go to church with me because they love me, right? They should be a Christian first. As a matter of fact, it says so in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that we should not be entering into these kind of intimate covenant relationships with people that are not believers as well. All right? So they should be a Christian. Second thing is they need to be someone that you're willing to lose yourself for. There is nothing in America that we care more about than our identity. Nothing. We all want to be individuals, recognizable. We all want to be different. But in marriage, the Bible tells us that the two become one. So marriage should work where I completely lose myself for this new thing that God is doing in me. So they need to be somebody that you are willing to lose yourself for. That's really what we see in Ephesians 5 where the Bible tells us that, that wives you are to submit to your husbands like unto Jesus. That husbands you are supposed to love your wives like Christ loved the church. You are supposed to submit to each other. That we're supposed to give our lives to each other and lose it to become one. And the third thing is I would say you need to marry the person that God calls you to marry. The person that God calls you to marry. And I believe that God through his providence is reigning over everything, but I think that he allows us to make choices. And so I think it's very important to prayerfully consider all of those things and to, to pray, God, what, what, what direction, what person 
Where do you want me to go? Those are the three things that I would give you today to answer that question. Another marriage question that we got was, what do I do when my spouse is not as committed to Jesus as myself? That's a really loaded question. It's really loaded. Because here's the question there, and I'm I'm just going to ask a question in response to that question. Who's evaluating whether they're more committed or less committed? You? Now let's go back to being judgmental, right? That means I'm sitting on the throne going, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. You are right, you are wrong. See, typically... God puts people together that are complement. We actually believe that femininity and masculinity are the perfect complement to one another. We would never say, I would never say anything stupid like a man is equal to a woman. I, I thank God that I am not equal to my wife. She is beautifully different than me, right? And there is a compliment that's in place there. There's a, a difference that's there. So what typically happens in a marriage is that one of you is strong in an area, the other one is weak in that area. One of you is strong, one of you is weak. One of you is strong, the other one is weak. And, and what happens so often is that we begin to make value-based judgments based on the stuff that we're strong at. Well, you know what? She just doesn't clean the house like I do. I mean, I keep the house. I keep my side of the bed pretty tidy. And I come home and there's clothes everywhere. And she hasn't picked up after the kids yet. And, and, I'm, I'm, you know, and we, we evaluate based on where we're strong against their weakness. So oftentimes when I've got this question in the past, what's really happening, what's really happening is that someone sitting back and going, this person, my husband, right? And, and I'm just going to, I'll be honest with you. Most of the time this conversation comes from women and I'm awesome. It is awesome that God addresses us for actually go to go to God's word. But often because... It's just, it's just one of those brilliant things. But it's often coming from, from a wife that's saying, my husband just doesn't love Jesus as much as me. He just doesn't. What am I supposed to do about that? And often what's happening is that there's a difference. There's things that you have formulated that would look like Jesus love coming out of a person and that may be that he might journal or read his bible when you see him reading his bible or it might mean that he talks to you about his relationship with jesus men say one third every day the amount of words that a woman does seriously one third the comprehensive amount of words and it's really easy to get into this position where we, we put ourselves on the throne and we say, they're not right and they're not right because I say they're not right. You know what? We don't want to be that way. We want to be gracious. But I, I do want to address what do we do if legitimately, 
I mean, legitimately, we're dealing, and, and this is so common, it is so common to deal with a, a spouse and, and a relationship where um, we're, we're dealing with a, 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 someone who's married and, and their, their spouse really has not fully committed to Jesus. There, there's a, a great tension between between that. And can I, can I just share some t- statistics that are out there? That on average, if a wife... If a wife meets Jesus, about 73%, this is according to Barna, about 73% of the time, the whole family is going to meet Jesus. This is amazing right here, okay? When a husband meets Jesus, first person in the family to meet Jesus, about 95% of the time, the whole family will come to know Jesus. You see, I think that there might be a little something messed up when we're in that tension where there's a woman that has met Jesus in the context of a relationship. And let's look at what the Bible says. It comes out of 1 Peter 3. And Peter is addressing that issue. A wife that is married to a man who does not know Jesus. All right? And the same principle is applicable to the inverse of that. But let's look at what the Bible says. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Let's just stop there. Can I tell you an approach that doesn't work? Nagging. Nagging doesn't work. Because nagging is judgment in practice. That's what it is. It is me pointing out everything that is wrong with you. I know this. I do it at home a lot. It doesn't work. It is not a fruitful plan at all. So what does work, especially in the tension of just, let's just focus on the main issue. My spouse doesn't know Jesus, isn't fully committed to Jesus, and I want them to be. What does the Bible tell us? It tells us that we need to make Jesus look good. We need to make him look right because too often, When someone knows Jesus and there's that tension, we make Jesus look like a judgmental, mean-spirited person. It just wants to point out everything that's wrong with me. And that's not at all who he is. Here's what I would say in reference to that. Give the gospel some credibility. If you're going to come home and say, God's changed my life. I found Jesus. I'm following him now. You know what should happen? Someone should see that. And that's exactly what 1 Peter 3 says. Live it out. Live it out in front of them. Let them see that the gospel is changing you. That it's molding you. That it's Totally, completely transforming you. So the answer to that question would be, make Jesus look good. 
give the gospel some credibility. All right, I got a few questions to roll through that are lifestyle questions, and we're just going to kind of go through these pretty quickly. Um, Number one uh, out of those, if Jesus calls us to love everyone, how do we handle other sins such as homosexuality? You guys have heard this probably before. Uh, I hate the sin, but I love the sinner, or I love you, but I don't like what you do. Um, it's, it's, we, we don't live in a world that that works very well anymore because people have found identities in what they do. It's, it's not new. It's, it's happened this way for, for, for years. This is not a brand new phenomenon. The Bible tells us clearly in John 13 this. I'm going to read this to you. A new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking. That you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples for you have loved one another. For you have loved one another. The the thing about about this is that it is really easy to become judgmental in lifestyle-oriented sin. It It is really easy to become the person that sits on the throne and goes, you, you are a drunkard, you are a liar, you are a homosexual, you are a failure. And the, the truth is, is that God doesn't create our identity because of our failures. I'm thankful for that. That he looks at me and doesn't say, Kevin, you are the guy that lied to me two days ago. And I'm going to remember that from now on. He doesn't do that. He creates my identity based on my worth. And so the Bible tells us that we would be known, we will be known as the disciples that follow Jesus based on the fact that we love one another. Simply that. So why, how do we do this? We love them irregardless of their failure. We love them irregardless of their failure. So how do we do that? And, and I think that, that to some degree we're asking, like, how do, how do I address it? Um, and, and, and let's just kind of go. So, so let's, that's the second question. How do we love them? How do I address it? How do I address the sin? In John 1, the Bible says twice that when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. Grace and truth truth. Two times the Bible drops that term in there. Um, truth without grace is, is really abuse, okay? Truth without grace is abuse. Grace without truth is just enabling, all right? There is a constant tension that we're called to walk in between being gracious and being truthful, so what, what is being gracious in that relationship? It is loving them. It is being someone that cares for them and that expresses that concern, that has legitimate concern for their life, that I want them to be in the best situation that they can possibly be. Then in the inverse of that, when we're invited into the conversation, when they ask us about things, we are to point them to Jesus and to trust that he can lead them. That's what my answer would be. 
to point them to Jesus and trust that he can lead them. Because the greatest disparity is not really their sin, but their depravity, all right? It's not the fact that they're doing something that's uh, broken. It's the fact that they don't know Jesus. And so we want to not make their sin such an issue that they can't meet Jesus and then let Jesus take care of everything else. All right, so that's what we want to do. We want to be truthful, but also gracious at the second time. All right, this is, this is my favorite. Another question someone asked uh, that has nothing to do with our attitudes, but I just thought I'd answer it anyway. Is it okay to drink, uh, and I put alcohol in there if you're a Christian, um, because I assumed that they knew that it was okay to drink water, I would guess. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that, that they knew. So just in some, some very quick uh, kind of snapshots, uh, is consumption of alcohol a sin? No, it is not. As a matter of fact, in John 2, the first miracle by Jesus in the, the history of his miracles, he turns water into wine. And the host of the party says, this is not the yellowtail stuff that you were serving earlier. This is really good. <laughs> All right. And then, then actually, uh, the, um, the Apostle Paul in, in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 5, actually tells Timothy that he needs to drink a little wine, that it'd be good for his health. So is consumption a sin? No, it's not. Is drunkenness a sin? Yes, it is. All right, and in Proverbs 23, uh, we see that Galatians 5.21 tells us that, that drunkenness is a sin. So, so to answer that question, and, and, and this, is, this is a really common question, is, is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? And I would say it, it depends. It's not okay for everyone. Um, per, some personal situations where people have family histories of addiction, um, some people have personal histories of compulsion and uh, not being able to regulate their behavior, I would suggest that you would uh, probably want to pray about disciplining yourself in that area. Um, also, there are bad settings for alcohol. I, I've had conversations with two friends in the last year that had extramarital affairs, and it started with this. Uh, a friend of mine, who happened to be of the opposite sex, and I decided to go get drinks after work. That's where it started. All right. That's bad. Don't do that. Don't. That's a bad setting for drinks. All right. So, so it it is a a a setting that we need to be to be wise about as well. All right. So that's that's the the generic answer there. All right. Um, number five, and 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 the last question for us. This is a a really really personal question. Why is it so hard to forgive myself for my sin? Why is it so hard to forgive myself for my sins? And the first thing that I would say is uh, just in response to that, is that, this is extremely common. Um, it's, it's not uncommon for to sit down with a grown man and him to pull out stuff that's very old out of his life and say, I just, I, I can't process how God could forgive me. I, 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 I am maybe even okay with that, but I don't know that I can forgive myself for making that, that mistake. And, and, and so um, the first thing that I would tell you is that if that's you, you, you may have a hard time with grace. 
And by that I mean that you may think that you can actually be perfect. Now you might not say it that way. You might not just all out say, hey, I, I, can, I can get this right today. I'm going to be perfect. You might, but your attitude might suggest it. You might actually think, hey, I could, I could make it through today without needing God's grace. And perfectionism is a, a, a disease that is all throughout our, our culture, and it is a disease that does not uh, readily understand the need for God's grace in our lives. It thinks that we can get it right and that other people should get it right because we can get it right. So I might say that the first thing that's there is that you might have a hard time with grace. And the second thing is that you might have believed the wrong gospel. You might have believed the wrong gospel. And by that I mean that you might have believed a gospel that told you that you could earn this thing. And even though you might not put it that way, you might be thinking that I should be getting this right. If God's going to love me, if I'm going to live in this untangible, unattainable relationship with God, I should be getting X, Y, and Z correct. And you can't. You can't earn it. You can't earn God's grace. And so the answer there is, to simply let Jesus be the substitutionary atonement for your sin. To just say, I don't deserve this forgiveness. I, I don't, but God has sent his son Jesus to reconcile me to himself. And so I'm going to let Jesus be who Jesus is because I don't want to rob God out of the work that he has already done. I want to experience the forgiveness of God through Jesus. Let's pray as we get ready to wrap this up. God, perhaps there's more of us that are in the room today that would just say, hey, you know, I, I don't know how God could forgive me. I don't know how God could forgive me. I've blown it so many different ways and Maybe today, uh, that's just kind of where we are. But would you remind us today, God, that we cannot earn it. That we can't in any way earn your grace. God, we can't earn your love. And it's ultimately that love that we're longing for, God. And so we want to look at the cross and let Jesus be Jesus and let him bury our sins in the grave. So now with nobody looking, I just want to ask a question today. I want you to be honest, not necessarily with me, but between you and Jesus. Have you, have you let yourself completely experience the forgiveness of God? Or do you still think that there might be a way for you to earn it and get it right? Are you counting yourself out, perhaps, because you're not perfect, because you've blown it?
Well, maybe today is the day that you could say, hey, God, I, I want that. I want to experience this forgiveness. I know I can't earn it. I'm willing to accept that now. If that's you and you're here today with nobody looking, everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed. If you would say, I want to experience the forgiveness of God today. Would you raise your hand right now? I see those hands. Anybody else? Anybody else? Well, God, for those that have raised their hands, we just want to confess that we're sinners and we've blown it. And that, God, that there is so much in this world that we just don't get right. But the good news isn't that we'll get it right. The good news is that you covered our failure with the blood of Jesus. And so we look to you today, God, believing that this life that you've invited us into is much more about you than it could ever be about us. So take us, God, and ransom us and rapture our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.